Well, today we continue our 4BG sermon series, this idea that each of us, no matter where we're planted, uh, are part of our community's fabric and that we are uh, sort of created to be a force of good and a force of change in our unique context. And so wherever you find yourself planted, you are for that place. Uh, We've said far too long Christians have been known for what they're against and what we are committing to as a church is that we are going to be known for what we're for. Um, Today we're talking about becoming a voice for the voiceless. Like I said, it's National Orphan Sunday next week, but we're ahead of the curve, so we're going to celebrate it this week. And what we're actually talking about is that the mission itself, this mission to know Jesus and make him known, requires that we be vocal. We have to become advocates uh, for those in need all around us. And so today, even when we talk specifically about children and uh, the orphan crisis in Ohio and America, what we're actually talking about is becoming a voice for the voiceless everywhere. And so if your heart's passion is a, is a one-degree change from that, and you have a, a passion to be a voice for another voiceless population, all of this applies. Uh, what I know to be true is um, my first uh, experience, I can remember my first experience with voiceless children. Um, it happened, oh gosh, a long time ago now, multiple decades back. I was uh, eight, eight or nine years old, maybe I was at my, my mama's house. My mama was my great-grandmother, and uh, you know, for a, a tiny child, she looked like she was about 600 years old, and she lived on the very, very, very poor east side of San Antonio. And so every so often, we'd get to go over to mama's house, and what I remember her for uh, best, in addition to the fact that I just couldn't believe someone could be this old and this lively, um, was her cucumber salad and her fried okra. Isn't that funny? You just remember the food. She also had a neighbor across the street who called me Carl, um, and she was older than Mama somehow, and so every time I'd go to Mama's house, they'd say, we need to go across the street and visit Miss Jane or whatever her name was, and then I'd sit in this really dark room with this lady with a gravelly voice, and she'd call me Carl and kind of pet my hand, and I just dealt with it. So I was not the voiceless child, needless to say, here. Um, So one day we go over, and my little sister is with me. She's maybe two at the time and a cousin. And my mother had been invited over with one of her sisters-in-law to go and make peach preserves, which sounds like some great southern tradition, I suppose. But the problem is it was June, and it's about 180 degrees in San Antonio, and Mama, being Mama, doesn't have any air conditioning. And so her house is stiflingly hot. She has like one tiny little fan going, and she didn't put it on three because it wastes too much electricity because she's a child of depression, right? So she has it on one to make sure she's not spending too much money on that. And what we realized really quickly was um, my sister, who's a toddler, and her cousin, who's one year older, they're both just tiny ones, uh, they were just melting. Like, you looked over and you just, they were wilting. And I realized these were children that had no voice. And, And I actually fundamentally remember kind of this emotional moment where what I knew they needed was a first step to end their suffering. And so what we did is we found some plastic dishpans uh, that looked something like this, somewhere in her backyard, away from the rattlesnakes and the various things that lived under Mama's house. Um, we found a couple of these dishpans. We got the hose out. We filled them with like 600-degree water from the hose, because even the hose water was hot. But I watched as my, my cousin and my sister, they sort of tore off all their clothes down to their underpants, and then they sat down in these buckets. And they looked like two little chickens that had half-hatched as they just got as much of their bodies into the water as possible. But for them, in that moment, they really, they were like in Disney World. There's so much relief and there's so much satisfaction of finally being relieved from, from the oppressive heat that they had. And yet being their age, they had no way to speak that. They had no way to advocate for themselves. They had no way to say that they needed something. But what we can do in the moment, I remember going, I think they need something and let's go find it. I was sort of my first experience at what does it mean to alleviate suffering? The reality is that today, uh, for many children, everyday life is a voiceless struggle. 
All around us, there are children whose everyday life is a voiceless struggle. They end up in the foster system for any number of reasons, any number of circumstances and situations, whether there's drugs or violence in the home, whether there are legal issues or mental health issues. There's all sorts of reasons that kids end up where they end up. Like I said, there's 13,000 children, give or take a few, in Ohio without a voice that require advocacy and require us. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says this. It says, speak out on behalf of the voiceless. And for the rights of all who are vulnerable, speak out in order to judge with righteousness and defend the needy and the poor. Scripture mandates that we become advocates. There are no shortage of of challenges on the way to being a voice for someone. But what we know is that we are commanded to be advocates for those who don't have a voice for themselves. So the first thing is we talk about these challenges. We're going to go through three of them. The first one is becoming a voice for the voiceless requires that we enter into a broken system. Ask anybody who's fostered before, ask anybody who's gone through that process, and they will tell you that uh, all their idealism went away about the first time they had to go through the court system. It is a broken system. It's a difficult thing to navigate. Systemic poverty is just that. It's a system. The reason we have disadvantaged people is the same reason we have advantaged people. There's inequality baked into our society. There's injustice baked into who we are. Upending a system then requires us to be disruptive, but it also disrupts us. It unravels someone's power. It always steals someone's control. And the reality for us as we look at being part of a system, intervening in a system, is that the people who lose power and control, it's us. You actually give up power and control when you choose to enter into a broken system. I have control of my life. I hold the power. When I choose to engage in becoming a voice for the voiceless, I actually have to give up some of my control and walk into a chaotic world that I can't manipulate. I give up some of my power in order to use it for others who don't have any. I give up some of my advantage so I can advantage someone else. So engaging in a broken system costs us, and the reward doesn't come in the gratification of the world. The other thing you you think in an idealistic way is when you take on some big, important thing, when you go on a justice mission, that the world is going to be cheering behind you, and very quickly what you'll hear is that it gets very lonely, and the voiceless don't speak praise. The reward for a job done in this area of being a voice for the voiceless, the reward is almost 100% internal, which leads us to number two. The second hurdle we get through is becoming a voice for the voiceless requires that we have an internal and an eternal reward structure. We are a people driven by external reward structures. Everything in our world uh, conditions us to look for external reward. You get a raise at work if you work hard. You get the affirmation of peers if you do good things. You... Uh, chase a romantic pursuit, and if you do it just right, maybe you get love at the end of the the rainbow. You get growing status in your network. You get growing popularity in your influence circle. What we also know to be true is that the baby who isn't yours, that's crying in the middle of the night, doesn't feel so gratifying. The child who resents you as they come of age for not being their mom or their dad is not gratifying. Like the external rewards of doing this fade over time, and so it's required of us to be consistent and and to be cognizant of the idea that it requires internal reward and an eternal perspective. It requires us to recognize that what we do for someone else isn't for us. It's for them. And in a world that's increasingly a part of this gratification cycle and this gratification loop where we go, I do things so I feel better, or I do things so they reward me, this is one of those areas that has deep internal rewards has far-reaching impacts and eternal rewards and yet won't satisfy that external desire for cheering and applause. That, that fades really quickly. 
So what we have to have is a soul-level belief that what we're doing matters deeply. We have to have a deep understanding that the internal impacts matter. We also have to recognize when we feel doubt in ourselves, when we start to wonder if this is all worth it, when we go, gosh, this is going to cost me, we have to ask ourselves, what did Jesus think about children? We actually see that Jesus elevated children. Matthew 18, at the time, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. One of the most radical aspects of Jesus' ministry was his elevation of children. Children were a necessary nuisance in the time. You fed them only to get them old enough so they could help bring in more money, help in the farming, help in the gathering, help in the family business. You fed them until they were old enough to work. They were a necessary nuisance. Jesus called them precious. Then Jesus said, to receive a child is to receive me. You say this often around here, but Jesus was crucified largely because he threatened the local power structure. The economic power structure, the political power structure, and the religious power structure were all threatened by Christ at every turn. And this is another one of the ways he did that. Jesus upended the strict structure of righteous religion. You do these certain things, you can raise your status, you can be holier. And what Jesus looks at all the righteous around him and he says, you know what, unless you're like the child, unless you welcome the child, and all of the righteous indignation that must have been happening that moment, I can't imagine. People go, the child, this has nothing to do with children. Look at all the laws I follow, look at all the things I've done. And he's going, it's not about that. Faith isn't about all the things you've done, faith is about this child. Both being like the child and receiving the child. Jesus welcomed women, children, the marginalized, the broken. Every bit of Jesus' life threatened the leaders of the day. Stole their power, stole their control. Jesus spoke of an alternative kingdom, this kingdom of God that rendered the kingdom of man obsolete. Think about this. Jesus brings in, ushers in the kingdom of God, and what does it do to everybody else who owns a piece of the kingdom of man? wipes out all the value of that. Their motivation was to get rid of him so they could hold on to some aspect of power, some aspect of control. If we look at the life of Christ and we think about becoming a voice for the voiceless, what we see immediately is that that's what Jesus was here to do. To free the prisoner, to release the oppressed, to fight injustice, And over and over and over again, he goes for people that society had forgotten about, that society was not worried about, that society just said that, "Mm, I'm okay, I'm comfortable. And Jesus said, I will give my life for you. And the external reward that we're talking about, the external reward that Christ got was death. For challenging the status quo, for fighting against power structures, for jumping into a broken system, Jesus was crucified. Before he left, he said, go and do likewise. So becoming a voice for the voiceless requires we prepare for the headwinds of active opposition. We will be actively opposed if we choose to take on this work. It's not just a battle of flesh and blood, although anyone who's done this will tell you the court system and the system in general, sometimes it feels like it's not in your favor. There is a battle going on against powers and principalities, against forces unseen. There is not just 
not very much of an external reward. There's actually an external threat. And this is not some ghost behind every sneeze theology. You're like, look around the corner, but there's a sp- it's not that. This is the reality of Scripture, is that there is a real spiritual battle happening. When we take on the light, it steals power and control from the darkness, and they will fight back. External threats get dealt with, but then an internal threat arrives. So as we think about how this works, and what does that look like? What does that war look like that's happening? What does that threat look like that's coming against me if I choose to take on this work? So often, we can get rid of the external threats, and we can get a group around us, and we're praying our way through it, and yet there's this still small voice, this inner threat that comes. This thing that a lot of people, even in this room right now, are, are hearing the whisper as you even begin, as the spirit within you says, you can be a part of the solution. There's a whisper from the darkness that goes, but maybe you can't. When it comes to finding a first step, when it comes to fighting the good fight, the best weapon of the enemy is not anything external, it's actually self-doubt. The enemy will whisper that you are unworthy, that you are incapable, that you are too young or you are too old, that you cannot make a difference. And the lie will be told that our little bit of help is insufficient to actually affect any change at all, so why, why do it? The lie will be told that the problem is too big and that we are too small. So one thing we won't do is deny that the problem is large. The problem is large. Jesus said it this way. Jesus is talking about who accepts him and what does it mean to, to be a good giver and a good receiver. And then halfway through on the screen, it says, this is, Jesus says, this is a large work. I've called you into this being a disciple, this, this fighting for the oppressed, this working against injustice. This is a large work I've called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who is thirsty. For instance, the smallest act of giving or receiving makes you a true apprentice, makes you a disciple. This is a large work. He says, it's easy to be overwhelmed to go 13,000. I can't change that. And Jesus says, for big problems, the actual counterintuitive answer, big problems require small solutions. Not a pool of cold water, a cup. And it's hard not to aim for the whole. Like we said last week, the reason we don't get into relationship is because it's messy and we want resolution and relationships never resolve. And so it's just this ongoing, open-ended, messy thing. And the same is true when we enter into becoming a voice for the voiceless. There's not a ton of resolution in this. And so when we don't see resolution as the end uh, goal, as the end matter of what we're doing, it creates a hesitancy to even get involved because I don't even know what success looks like. I like to think Jesus sees voiceless children wilting and sizzling as the peaches boil on the stove. And he, he wonders, what could we do for them? And what the lie says, what we need to do for those children in the backyard at Mama's house that are just dying under the heat is they need some sort of lavish backyard pool. They need like the Taj Mahal of backyard resort pools. And so we get this lie in our head that go, I can't do that. I can't, pres- I mean, this is what these kids deserve and I don't have the means for this and this is not what my cup of cool water looks like. And so let me just wait for someone else who's better equipped to do it. Let me wait for someone who has more money or more time or more resources or more training. Let me wait, wait for them to do it. And Jesus says, you just need a couple of dishpans. You just go, go around the corner where there's those rocks and that thorny bush and go and, and watch out for the snakes and grab those dishpans and fill them up. And guess what? That's enough. Start small, Jesus says. Just start. 
Enter into the mess any way you can because the, those dying of thirst are not looking for fresh alpine spring water. People starving to death are not looking for a four-course meal. The voiceless simply need a voice. And so we need to figure out what it means to be the first step in becoming that voice. And that's where self-doubt re-enters. Self-doubt comes back again. It keeps coming. It says, well, okay, you could be a voice, but you don't have a very good voice. You don't have a very strong voice. You don't have a very influential voice. I mean, you could be a voice, but what does your voice really matter? You're one of seven billion people. And what we know to be true, what we've seen in history, what we see in the Bible, what we've seen in recent history, that a determined whisper can change the world. A determined whisper can change the world. Rosa Parks was told to vacate her seat on that Montgomery, Alabama bus in 1955. Her response was simply, no. Martin Luther King was an orator without peer, could get a room fired up and passionate like nobody's business. She just said no. There was no soaring rhetoric, no incredible speech. She said no. And she lit a match that started a forest fire of change. I think of Rosa Parks and I think of my mama. They kind of, I see pictures and I see them in each other. I see a frail woman. I wonder if her voice shook or if her confidence wavered or her stomach sank as she saw the officer advance on her. What I know to be true is it didn't matter because a shaky, determined whisper can stop deep injustice. She took a step and gave voice. A two-letter word sparked a conflagration of passion and a movement for justice in America. That's all that Jesus asks. Take a step to be a voice. In the hard stuff, it is easy to feel defeated. It's easy to feel overwhelmed. It's easy to start forgetting what we just learned. Hey, take a small step and you can make a difference. And we take the small step and then that self-doubt, guess what, comes back in again. This is a big struggle for me. It's something that took me a long time to get over, if I'm over it yet. When I was living in South Africa, one of the big things we did is took care of uh, kids. We took care of the needs of hungry kids down the street. About a quarter mile from the church, uh, directly down our street, was a squatter camp, an informal settlement, basically. There's over a million people in Johannesburg that live this way. They live in shacks of tin and cardboard, just sort of lean together. And so there was one of about six or 7,000 people that, that was just basically in the shadow of the church that we served. And so a couple times a week, we'd go over there and we'd feed these kids We'd learn their names, we'd bring them soccer balls and jump ropes, and we'd come back the next week to find broken ropes and flat balls, and what can you do? My determined whisper, my first step, once I, I kind of got a hold of the situation, my first year there, I said, we're going we're gonna to end this. And so I called it sandwich warfare. I said, I will make so many sandwiches that these kids will not be hungry anymore. And I took a picture, this is one of the pictures I took, and just over the ridge behind the barbed wire fence are the 7,000 or so souls that live in abject poverty. And so every week we'd show up and, and they're holding little plastic buckets and we would bring them food. Sometimes it was a hot dog, sometimes it was rice with a little bit of chicken mixed in. And these children, this is the dead of winter, it's probably 40 degrees, would sit on the curb and eat. And there were hundreds of them. So I made a commitment at one point that I was going to practice sandwich warfare and we were going to end hunger. I was going to declare war on it and we would win. And so every Saturday, I would get up, it was my one day off of the week, and I would walk to the local grocery store, the pick and pay, and I would buy all the white bread they had, 
Then I would buy all the peanut butter they had and all the strawberry jam they had. I would then take these giant full plastic bags back to wherever I was living at the time and I would lay them all out and make a one-man assembly line and I would make as many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches as I could. Then on Sunday morning when all these kids would show up because we told them, come to church, we'll feed you, they would all clamor into the church and we would feed them. And kids, young and old, would all be holding peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and they thought it was really weird because they don't really eat peanut butter. But I didn't know that. Over the years, this continued. Staff and I lived there. We continued to feed these kids regularly. We continued to bring peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on a Sunday morning. We continued to fight against hunger. We felt like we were making a difference. We move away from South Africa. A year or two later, we take another team of, of Americans. We take a small team of five, ten people, and I tell them, you're going to be part of this. It's so incredible. We're in sandwich warfare. We're going to do this. You've got to be ready. And we would make hundreds and hundreds of sandwiches, and we have all these people doing it. We go back to the same squatter camp, the same place, and years after we started, it's the same kids. And they're still hungry, and they're still poor. They're still diseased. They are still dying. I was crestfallen. Like, what was this all about, Jesus? My cup of cold water, I might as well have poured it out. Didn't feel like it made one bit of difference. Didn't feel like it changed one life. And what had happened was the lie had come back in. The doubt had come back in. The lie that said, you did nothing. That wasn't true. The truth was, while they were still poor and while they were still needy and I hadn't changed the systemic injustice that had put them in this place, the truth was we did something. And we had to understand that the kids were still breathing and still believing and still dreaming And maybe even if one kid thought the world hasn't forgotten us, maybe it was worth it. And we had to sit back and go, if one life has been impacted, if one child's trajectory was changed, if one belly was filled once, it was worth it. Jesus says the the work is overwhelming. The need is overwhelming, so start small. And as you start small, as we take this on annually, we come back to this issue and we go, we're going to start small. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep chipping away. We're going to keep fighting the fight. What we have to realize is when it feels like it's not helping, when it feels like it's it's just not getting there, when it feels like there's still a problem, we've been at it for years and there's still a problem. If there's one life that's changed, it was worth all the effort. Jesus said with just a little bit of faith, we could move mountains. For a long time, this bothered me as a Christian. He says, just a little bit of faith. You can move mountains. You tell them, move, and it'll get up and go. And I'd say, God, why have I never seen that? You said that. I believe that. I've never seen it. It turns out I have seen it. That a couple people with butter dives moved mountains of peanut butter and jelly. We move it from one place to another for God's purposes. Foster and adopt This whole issue is a mountain in our midst. And what I know to be true is that one person with a shovel can move a mountain. Just do it one scoop at a time. You start small, and you stick at it, and we can move a mountain. One person with a shovel can move a mountain one scoop at a time. Hundreds of us can do it way faster. So I don't know where your heart is this morning. I don't know what spirit is doing inside of you is, is 
we kind of lay out this need. What I do know is that everybody in the room can grab a dishpan or pick up a butter knife or grab a shovel and get to be part of a solution. I know that even though the problems of the world are too big for you, they're nowhere near too big for us. That no one needs to be in this alone, that no one needs to think this is on them, that we together, every single one of us, like we talk about membership, every single one of us putting our piece in, our piece of the puzzle, we can be part of making a huge step. And all it requires is that we take the first step. So I've mentioned it already, but this is where it gets really dry in application. Next Sunday, we want to buy your lunch. Simple as that. We want to buy your lunch, and we want to take care of your kids if you got them. And all we want in return is for you to be willing to listen. To see what are the possible avenues that I can be part of the solution. You are not committing to anything other than listening. And you're not ever going to be walking out of that room at lunch next week with 10 kids and going, oh gosh, what did I do? Because everybody's fear when we talk about this is, gosh, I'm just not ready to take on eight more kids. And the reality is some, some people in the room have gone through the certification process to be respite providers. They're babysitters for those who can take on the kids right now. And it makes a world of difference. From the smallest little bits of advocacy, from being a CASA agent and advocating for children to being certified in respite to all the way up to taking on all 13,000 into your house. Our job is to be willing to listen, to be willing to consider how we can help, to be willing to think through what our cup of cool water looks like in this season of our lives. Because the fact is, you cannot change the lives of tens of thousands of children in the system today, but we can. We can provide an overnight insecurity and warmth. We can provide a family that gives a sense of protection. We can provide one more chance for a child to hope or to dream or to believe that maybe the world hasn't forgotten about me. You can absolutely change a life. You can absolutely change the world in the first step is to be willing to become a voice for the voiceless. Let's pray. Lord, I feel the weight of uh, the challenge today. I feel the weight of what you've asked us to do in the way that, uh, as a people... We have not yet conquered this. Father, the mountain in front of us looks daunting. In our spirits and our souls, we experience self-doubt. We hear the whisper of, you can't make a difference. We hear the whisper of, it's not enough. So, Father, my prayer is that we, as a people... We would listen to your voice instead. Listen to your whisper that says we can start small. That we can pick up our shovels and we can move mountains one scoop at a time. Father, I pray that you would sow that truth into us. You would challenge us to be leaders in this community, leaders in this state, leaders in this nation. Father, we would be a 
people about the redemption of young lives that would be about the revival of hope. God, will you lead us and bring us to a place where each and every one of us, no matter how small, sees ourselves as advocates, as voices for those who can't speak. And in doing so, Father, will you remind us that you were first that for us, that when we were in need, you came for us. When we were broken and lonely, you found us. When we didn't even know what we needed, you knew we needed you. So draw us into yourself. Strengthen us. Give us endurance and courage for the road ahead. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.